On today's show, we talk memoir with Jessica Wilbanks. She tells us we don't have to feel bad about not getting to the it book that's in everybody's TBR pile, because the books that really change our lives are seldom the ones that everyone else is gabbing about. Fu and Jessica wonder out loud whether the Me Too movement and femme power wave is making it difficult for white males to get published in our industry. Tune in because these and other gripping mysteries of our day will be solved. <laughs> Why are you looking for deeper like, meanings? Because I'm me. I know, I know. What, what was I not appreciating? Why what is the sun hot? Hello. Yeah. Hello. Okay, awesome. Great. <laughs> okay, Congratulations. Best of all possible worlds. Screw okay. you, Monday. <laughs> <laughs> Lawn people have arrived. Oh no! <laughs> oh, no. How much do we have to pay those? <sighs> All right, we gotta start right now. Okay. <laughs> the SWAT team <laughs> next door. Okay. Sounds great. Sounds great. Go. We're ready. Everybody, go fast. Okay. I'm Jessica Cole. I'm Fulu. I'm Kate Martin Williams. And this is effing Shakespeare. By writers, for writers. My first introduction to our next guest, Jessica Wilbanks, was reading her memoir, When I Spoke in Tongues. The book, which is the story of Wilbanks leaving and then exhaustively researching the Pentecostal faith, did not disappoint, both as a shining example of the memoir, but also an education in a subject I knew very little about. The other lovely byproduct of this work is that it led me to Wilbanks' essays, from which I also learned both more about her subject matter and again about the form itself, this time the essay. She writes with a crystalline clarity and confident devotion to her thesis, but what I appreciate most is that her writing is never without tenderness. I said in the last show that I have an abiding distrust of someone who writes as if they have all the answers. Will Banks asked the reader to come along as she navigates her way through thorn after thorn, never shying away from tough truths or even the reality that some things are at the end of months of devoted questioning indecipherable. But her resolve tells us we are made better for the inquiry together. We're so thrilled to welcome Jessica Wilbanks to Effing Shakespeare. Thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. I, I, I'm really grateful for that. Thanks for coming. I love talking memoir, so I'm really excited for our conversation today. I spent some time doing some ghostwriting and wrote a memoir and decided to do a bunch of reading prior to that because that wasn't specifically my training and just got swept away in the the memoirs about faith journeys. Yeah. Jesus Land was a favorite and then I read Darren Strauss's Half a Life. Have you read that? Before? I haven't. No. I want to say McSweeney's published it and it was really beautiful and then of course Joan Didion anything that she writes but yeah. particularly the year of magical thinking. Yeah. So I just wanted to know what you look to as guides, maybe during the process or before. Yeah, yeah. So I really came to the memoir genre kind of kicking and screaming. <laughs> so I was originally a fiction writer, and 
something happened to me that I think happens to a lot of people who are honing their craft as fiction writers. So you are typically a lifelong reader and you devour books and you know structure really well. You know what language is, what beautiful language looks like, you know, all those movements from reading. And for me, at least, when I was starting to write fiction, I was just so aware of what I was not doing in my fiction. You know, I wasn't, the language wasn't strong enough, the structure wasn't tight enough, the characters weren't full enough. And I got really frustrated with kind of my inabilities as a fiction writer. And I think that I started, what I found in my like early fiction was the the strongest elements of my fiction were actually taken from my own life. So mm. I kept finding myself and being really embarrassed about it, finding myself writing about families with, you know, a structure like my, this kind of bombastic, temperamental father and a very sweet mother and, you know, three kids. And I found myself writing about the church a lot too. Mm -hmm. So women who were kind of stuck in fundamentalist churches and weren't able to be vocal or, you know, assertive. And I was so embarrassed, you know, every, every story that I wrote, I was like, man, you just can't get out of your own head. And then I so it's kind of a long story, but I I I kind of stumbled upon this manifestation of Pentecostal Christianity. So I found out that Nigerian evangelists were coming to the United States in an attempt to kind of save heathen Americans. And I was so fascinated by that because it was such a reversal of kind of the trope that I always knew about as a kid, like, you know, white missionaries American going over. Yeah. yeah. So it was such mm -hmm. a compelling subject. I got really into it. I really imagined that literary journalism would be, you know, I wasn't writing good fiction. I was too stuck on my own life. So I tried to write this book as kind of narrative nonfiction, literary journalism. But what ended up happening was the strongest and kind of most energetic sections were sections where I kind of dipped back kind of unwillingly at the time into my childhood. Right, yeah. So so all that to say, when I finally realized that I was writing a memoir, I was I have a big stack of kind of faith journey memoirs at home that I haven't read because I was afraid to read them at the time. I was kind of afraid that they would I would end up writing those books instead of my yes. book, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So now I'm kind of going back to some of those and enjoying them so much. But at the time, you know, some of the memoirs that really, really inspired me, Michael Andache's Running in the Family has mm -hmm. been kind of a touchstone. He There's this wonderful first line to his book, what began it all was the bright bone of a dream I could barely hold on to. Mm -hmm. I was like, that's the book I want to write, yeah. you know, like with that kind of energy. <laughs> And then I read Maggie Nelson's Bluettes, and that was a huge, that was a huge touchstone. Oh so many people have mentioned that on this podcast. It's like the underlying theme. I know. Yeah, yeah. But... yeah. I feel like it's not seen yet as like this canonical work of nonfiction, like in the Academy, but I think it's... I think that will be one of the books that kind uh, yeah, of our era leaves behind. Mm -hmm. you know? As much as people talk about it, for yeah. sure. Yeah. 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 I feel it'll be born out that way. Yeah. We've had Cameron Dees and Hammond on the show here, and sh she spoke about writing. She also has a memoir that's coming out this year, and we got a little sneak peek, and it was it just blew me away. She's a friend, and I had the privilege of doing an early read, oh, and it's just a, a, an amazing book. Yeah. 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 
But she, yeah. her comment that so stuck with me was, was what she said about figuring out a way to stay at the work when it was so scary. You know, you're, you are dipping into yeah. your actual life and exposing yourself and yeah. very private intimacies of your family. And she said she just kept telling herself, well, no one's going to read this <laughs> every day. No one's going to read this. Totally. Totally. It's, it's. It's such a mind game, you know, like staying staying focused on the material. And for me, I think I I don't have the same kind of fraught relationship with exposure that a lot of people do, you know. I have friends who never put pictures of their kids on Instagram or Facebook and I probably should be more aware of those kinds of those kinds of elements and dangers of exposure than I am, but for me, I think like I grew up reading novels and memoirs where people dug so deep into their personal life and really crafted it, you know, and that was always what I aspired to. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, the the exposure element has been really difficult, especially with my family. You know, I <laughs> I I just had to put it out of my head when I was writing, you know, like any – I I knew that I would share it with them before it was published, and I dreaded that so much. You know, the moment that I would, I ended up FedExing like these. I I spiral bound the manuscript just before it was due to the publisher yeah. and sent it to, you know, two copies to my parents and a copy to each of my brothers, and it was the hardest thing I've ever done. Oh God, you know? yeah, yeah. But during the writing, I just didn't think about it at all. You know, you you just can't. Um, but. For me, like the other part of it was I was I was so concerned about one of the things that I was most worried about was, you know, a bad memoir is a memoir where you're just kind of reporting what happened to you, you know, like and not really making mm-hmm. any sense of it. And I think that was the other huge fear that I had during the process and the thing that paralyzed me because I think what I learned in this book was part of drafting is – putting that raw kind of crap material onto the page and then revision is the place where it comes alive, you know? And and that was really hard for me during the process to let myself write, like Anne Lamott says, shitty first drafts, you know? Yeah. And, and that's so true. Like I'm such a perfectionist and I know good stuff when I see it. And to see the just awful, you know, stuff that I was First like layer. regurgitating. It was like, you know, adolescent jur- journal entries, you know, but, but with, and something I really push with my students is that's what it is to draft. You know, you've got to get it on the page and only then can you kind of see where the energy is and see what kind of story it is. And if you're not in that process of discovery as a writer, your reader is not going to get anything out of it. You know, it's just going to be, totally. oh, that's an interesting anecdote. <laughs> thank you for that reportage yeah i know i know um could you do you mind reading a passage sure sure so i think i'll read this this passage from i think it's the the fourth chapter called revival so and this is a scene i never thought would be in this book you know i thought this book would be really about the history of the pentecostal church and what was going on with these Nigerian missionaries, and instead this is kind of where I went, you know, as I was writing it. So I will start here. So this is my family and I um, when I was probably about 11 years old. Slowly we made our way down a 10-mile stretch of highway, the pitch black woods hugging us on either side, 
The Chesapeake Bay flowed just beyond those woods to the west, and the Patuxent River wound around to the east, and the revival was in a borrowed patch of field that was cut out of the woods. My father nosed the hatchback into a parking spot, and we all piled out and filed into that glowing tent. We took our places in a row of chairs toward the back, set the Bibles down, and joined in the singing. Miss Kathy led the band through the old hymns, the ones everyone knew by heart. Amazing Grace, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, There is a Bomb in Gilead. My father took my mother's arm. She resisted at first, then he caught her eyes and they smiled secret, closed lips smiles. My mother's lilting soprano joined my father's baritone, and even my brother Obear fell in line with the melody. My heart lifted in my chest, and for the first time all day, I felt like I could breathe. I closed my eyes with relief and lifted my voice with the music, clapping until the palms of my hands stung. Then we stretched our hands toward the top of that white tent, and those who had the gift spoke in that beautiful heavenly language that came from the Holy Spirit. For a minute, it felt like the Lord himself might come down to meet us. There was so much we wanted in that moment. We wanted to tap into the force that spun mountains and oceans out of air and take it into us. We wanted to know all the names for God. We wanted to speak in a language we couldn't understand. We wanted to burn away our old selves and peel off the burned skin and find new skin there. We wanted to grow like seeds in the light of God's all-encompassing presence. We wanted to be bigger than any single one of us could be on our own. We wanted to be pure. I love that line. There was so much we wanted in that moment from that section. Mm -hmm. You do this a lot where there's a, a short line that packs so much punch, emotional punch, but also in terms of it, um, its position in the text that there's uses like you, it precedes this long list of things that you want and I just think it's very deft thank and, you and it is it's like this sort of hard nugget of yeah of, hmm. you know sort of distilled truth and then amidst all these beautiful descriptions of hmm. of that sort of unfolding it is really it's almost it's almost flower-esque <laughs> thank you I think that's you know it's interesting because I kind of feel like that's there's some relationship between the writing style and the content, you know. The thing about Pentecostalism that I don't experience anymore, you know, in my daily life is this sudden kind of flowering of emotion. I think that that's, yeah, that's something that, that, I'm, that I'm really eager to kind of get back to and represent in the text because I think mm. that, you know, life without that feeling can be kind of lukewarm and bland. Mm. So I really wanted mm-hmm. to enter into those moments of just such bliss, you know, that I really miss and can't really find a way back to anymore. As you're speaking, it reminds me, I think there was a feeling of envy for me because mm-hmm. this isn't something that I experienced at all in my upbringing. Even though we went to church, it was not, there was no flowering in that way. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. And so mm-hmm. that was one of the, things that it imparted to me as a reader especially the first part was a little bit of envy and which I think is good because I don't I don't know that I experience that all the time yeah I think yeah. it's um, one of the great things about reading this your book I agree I, I think it does sort of 
give your parents and your family this, I mean, their costs to this lifestyle as well as you enumerate and very vulnerably and bravely delineate. But there is this beautiful outpouring that is ecstasy and is bliss as yeah, well. It's a really yeah. great balance. Thank you. Yeah, I, you know, I've, I've had the experience since I published the book of hearing from a lot of people who worshipped like this at some point in the past, either grew up Pentecostal. And I think even though, so Pentecostalism is a kind of Christianity where you see these, they call them the gifts of the spirit. So mm -hmm. speaking in tongues, being slain in the spirit, the gift of prophecy, all these very exuberant behaviors. But I think that there's also a quality about this kind of worship that's very much, you know, it's also evangelicalism too. You know, this idea that you have this truth and your dearest desire is to share that with other people, you know, and mm -hmm. it provides all this singular purpose. So I've been hearing from folks who grew up this way or, you know, used to identify as this type of Christian and then went away from the church. And a lot of people write to me about the intense shame that they have mm -hmm. because especially in the U.S. and you know, not just in the U.S., this this kind of religion is really associated with this conservative mentality, and it comes with a lot of patriarchy and hierarchy and and mm -hmm. real hatred, you know, and bigotry at, at, at moments. And many people who kind of found that kind of bliss now judge themselves so much for succumbing to that, you know, for yeah, succumbing to yeah. kind of emotional manipulation. But I think for me um, – part of my journey in kind of reconciling all of this has been really, really facing the good parts of that, you know, the parts that did empower me and make me feel strong, especially as a young woman, and then to really face directly the worst parts of it, which I later write about, you know, mm -hmm. in some of my experiences in Nigeria. But, you know, I could have easily written about those same kinds of situations in, in the United States as well. It's a really, yeah, it's a very intense belief system that, yeah, is is great subject matter for a memoirist because it's so it's so alive, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was really taken with the structure of the book, your decision to build it in these two parts. Can you tell us a little bit about that structure and then where it came from? Yeah, yeah. So, and I can't really give anything away because my book isn't really the kind of book that, you know, the, the, you don't, there's no spoilers <laughs> possible, really. I, you know that I left the church pretty early on. So yeah, I really struggled Thanos to find. What, no, what's that? No, Thanos dies at the end. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so originally the main arc that I had for the book was as context, I um, ended up getting a grant to travel to southern Nigeria and research what I believe to be the roots of the Pentecostal faith. So there's many scholars who believe that when people were kidnapped, particularly from West Africa and Yoruba traditions and brought to the United States and forced to worship in, in these Christian churches, that they, they brought some of that Yoruba worldview with them, that more ecstatic experience, more of a kind of a Pentecostal experience, and that that then led to the creation of Pentecostalism as we know it. So long story short, I went to Nigeria. I spent two months there, 
was really overwhelmed by the warmth and generosity of everyone that I met and ended up spending a lot of time with a group of atheists as well as a group of Christians and kind of really came to terms with what I believed. So originally that was, once I succumbed to the idea that it was a memoir, you know, that was the story that I imagined that I would tell. And I remember going to a writer's residency program um, in Virginia and bringing all these kind of colored index cards and you know, I really uh, work with my students on Freytag's pyramid, the kind of traditional structure model where there's an inciting incident and then rising action and then a climax and then falling action and resolution. So I was kind of trying to get toward that structure. And I really thought it would be the Nigeria trip that would, you know, do most of that. But, you know, I found myself kind of dissatisfied with the flashback structure because I knew there was some stuff I wanted to bring in from my own childhood. And then in the end, I decided to have kind of two arcs. And one was, you know, starting with, you know, my childhood in the church and then moving toward a moment where I left that world completely. You know, I left my hometown, my family. I went to very progressive college and didn't look back. So that was kind of one story. And then that's part one. And that was next to this parallel experience that I had as you know, a woman in my late 20s, early 30s, where I kind of was drawn to this, all of this again, and didn't believe in it, but kind of wanted to, and then had an experience where I kind of had to come to terms with the fact that I, that this was not for me. As you're talking, I'm thinking about Educated. Yeah. Another book that I will not let myself read. Yeah. (laughs) I I know I would love it, but I just can't quite be able to read it. We have, I have that experience with the book that people kept recommending to me as I was writing my novel in um, graduate school, The Hummingbird's Daughter. Everyone was like, you should read this because it's very much like what you're doing. And I was like, that's the exact reason. (laughs) Totally. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And then to have it come out the same year, I was wondering if you had feelings. Clearly you have feelings. Well, you know, it's, (laughs) it's complicated. Like before, before the show officially started, we were talking a little bit about just all of the, like one of the biggest things that's happened with me this year is moving from a place where writing was very much this private thing that I did. I was working. I I was raising my son. I, you know, was no longer around writers every day. So I was having this experience with my book that I was only sharing with my editor and my husband. You know, I didn't have a community. And then to pivot suddenly, you know, as soon as the book is done to this world of getting it out, you know, and and seizing opportunities to get the word out and all of this stuff. And also being very aware of struggles and limitations that you have in that process while also watching certain books really, you know, take off. And educated was one of those. No, I know. I know. Yeah. So, so Michelle. You're talking about marketing (laughs) PR. So Uh, Michelle Obama's book came out the day that my book came out. I mean, but you know, it's, it's not, it's totally (laughs) like it's, it's apples and oranges in every possible way. You know, like I, Something that really helped me kind of navigate that whole process was, you know, my husband said, like, I think the most that you can hope for, and not not in any kind of a derogatory way, but, you know, this, uh, the hope is that this book will, you know, someone will read it who hasn't felt um, like 
there's who who hasn't felt validated for mm-hmm. their experiences of loss, you know, when they leave a faith yeah. community. Um, and I think it's a story that many people don't talk about. You know, a lot of people will leave a faith community and immediately turn on it, you know, and that's tempting, you know. <laughs> and I think I would have done the same thing <laughs> if I had had a more a more painful experience. You know, I left so early that I was able to really be, you know, a free young adult, you know, without without some of the shame that comes associated with sexuality or or things like that. Um, but but my hope was always that it would reach a few individuals, you know. But it's but it's tough, you know. You you do fight those feelings of, you know, wanting to be more part of the national conversation. Um, but from everything that I've heard, it sounds like educated praise is very well deserved. Um, oh yeah, I think for for sure. Um, but I would say that there there is something about your um, coming back to the faith with this sort of mm-hmm. empathy that um, isn't present in the Westover Interesting. Book. Yeah. Um, not that she, she, I mean, I think she treats her subject with a lot of tenderness too, um, but it's it doesn't have that same sort of self-reflective. I think hmm. she doesn't have right. a sort of way to, I mean, in a Come way she does it. because her, her PhD, she does look at, she does examine some aspect of faith for her PhD dissertation. But I think perhaps because it's all intellectual and mm. not as experiential as yours. Yeah, Jessica, I, think I don't that's know. A nail but, on the um, I'm, I'm glad they both are in the world. It's not, it's not <laughs> you know. The last thing I'm going to do is pit women writers of. <laughs> There's <laughs> plenty of room for Tara Westover, Michelle. Totally, Obama, totally. And <laughs> something, you know, something that I. Some other kind of goal that I had with particularly the first part of the book was, you know, something that I recognized about myself, particularly when I was writing the book, was that my decision to leave the church as a teenager was driven partially by wanting to break out of these structures and be my own person and get away from this shame-oriented view of sexuality. But another part of it was also driven by embarrassment. You know, I, I, I attended this church that was a really interesting church. It was multiracial, which is very unusual for churches mm-hmm. in America. It was very blue collar. You know, most people worked with their hands. Most women stayed home with kids. And you, you could see that in, in church on Sunday. You know, the, my dad would go to church, you know, even though he kind of scrubbed his hands. He was a bricklayer, so he would have acid burns on his hands and these gashes from, you know, tools and whatnot. He had, you know, mud on his boots when he came straight from work on, on Wednesday nights. Yeah, I love that detail about the time yes. for the revival when he actually managed to scrub the concrete out of the <laughs> yeah. hair on the back. Yeah, it? yeah. But when I was a kid, I mean, like now I see that as, you know, I I miss that so much. I miss growing up in a world like that. Um, but at the time, like especially when I went to this private high school and my dad, like he would always drive these enormous pickup trucks that were rust buckets. You know, okay. he had all these tools in the back of the truck. He would have like bags of cut grass. He also mowed lawns, you know, like it was just the most humiliating thing in the world, you know, and I wanted to get as far away from that world right. as I possibly could. And I think for me, like education was my ticket out. You know, I got a scholarship to mm. 
this private high school and then I got a scholarship to college. And if it wasn't for that, I would still be there. You know, I, I don't think I would have had any other path out. And I'm very aware of that, especially now as a mother. And very, I have a lot of shame and guilt about the way that I looked at my family and people who were like my family and also people who just worshiped in such a like earnest way. <laughs> you know, it was, it was yes. just a turned my stomach as a, as a college student, you know. And I think I wanted to own that. Part of my return through this trip to Nigeria was looking closely at people who were so much like my family and the people that we worshiped with and kind of getting underneath some of my, you know, <laughs> some of my biases about poverty, basically. Mm-hmm. And and I think, mm-hmm. you know, now as like a middle class person, I think I'm I'm very aware of all of the all of the bias that goes with some of the way that we look at people who worship in in these particular ways whether they're in the United States or Nigeria. Yeah, absolutely. Can we talk about some of the other writing and writing related work that you do? You you are a teacher and an editor. Yeah. Um, and yeah. you've done some work here with Write Space, which is a great organization here in Houston. Yeah. So just in January, was finally in a position to be able to, I had been working for a nonprofit doing communications for the past eight years. And, and before graduate school, I was also working for nonprofits. So now I'm finally teaching and writing and kind of cobbling together a little bit of income that way. I also got a Houston Arts Alliance grant this last year, which has oh, been fantastic. life-changing. Congratulations. Houston, one of those yeah. like, rare birds who manages to earn an income without having to well, do the other thing. Not, not, not a very substantial <laughs> income, but, but you know, I, I think that I did this little event recently for a writer's group. And they were asking a lot of questions about like my book deal and different aspects of that. And Which we don't talk about. No, and I think we should. You yeah, know, I yeah. think that's part of all of this. But one woman said very bluntly, like, do you think you could ever get rich doing this? And I was like, no. Like, I, I know that there are people who can write the kind of books that could resonate with so many people and that it's this perfect kind of marketing strategy that gets paired with that. And I don't think that's ever going to be me, you know, but but I don't think it needs you. I, I don't see success that way. Like I, books that have really changed my life are not books that right. most people have read, you know. So. That's so good. Yeah. yeah. That's really good to remember. Mm-hmm. But, but for me, mm-hmm. like I, I always thought I, I'm such an extrovert and I don't like just sitting in my house all day. So even if I did, you know, suddenly money wasn't an issue, I, I would really like to be still be involved with people in some way, whether it's teaching or doing editing. And I've been teaching a lot since January because I kind of immediately thought I should have probably given myself more space for just, you know, free days of writing. But but there's something about talking to students about writing and it's so clear to me what what they need and what what a piece needs. And it's almost yeah. like talking to an old version of myself, you know, <laughs> and kind of reassuring myself. So yeah, like I, it's I brought like parenting, right? It really is. It really is. Yeah, you, you counsel You're parenting your students like you parent yourself, like you parent totally, your totally, totally, totally. Yeah, yeah. 
So what you said about the huge books not having so much of an impact on you as the maybe smaller, quieter books, I feel that way about this book. And before we were on the show, Jess and I were talking about a couple other memoirs, but both educated, but also Hillbilly Elegy, which oh, I, yeah, yeah. I haven't yeah. read. But it's gotten this like huge yeah. acclaim. And Jess was saying that there is a movie in the works. Oh, I didn't Directed know by Ron Howard. Part of me was just like, oh my God, why that? I mean, why that? Yeah. Directed by that, by yeah. a man, written yeah. by a yeah. man. Sure. When there's so much out there. And so I decided we should talk about that because this is the all-woman season of yeah. the show. And um, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that, about the sort of dominance of um, – male POVs in, yeah. in memoir and I know wouldn't it be nice if it was only in the Pentecostal church like, <laughs> yeah that's so everywhere true else. <laughs> that's so true <laughs> that was the only place once you leave that everything else is women for everything I, the other part of that story was that there was this I was listening to a podcast the podcast is called Bullseye and they did a show on this book with an author who wrote this book called Was 1999 the Best Year for Movies Ever? Huh. Actually, I think the book is called and the whole show was really good and like you don't realize how many movies came out in 99 that were really influential. Huh. Rushmore, The Matrix, American Beauty, huh. Election. And then so I'm listening along like, oh, yeah, that's great. That's so cool. And I really like Jesse's interview style. And so I really, as a rule, like his show. And he doesn't always have the, like, big name guests. It's like guests you should know about but don't. And like 45 minutes into the show, they have this, like, five-minute aside conversation about, man, looking at this list, there's a lot of men in leading roles. Oh, and also... I think 90% of these were directed by men. And it's just like this yeah. little five-minute capsule that just know. exploded the whole show for me. Yeah. You know, in a way that yeah. was like, oh, fuck, man. Like, why? why? I know. And it's 20, almost 20 years later. No. <laughs> how many years later? Yeah, it's 20 years yeah, later. Actually 20 years later. And what are we doing? I know. I know. It reminds me of something I, I saw on, on Twitter the other day. Um, someone said, he was he was a man, and he said, "I challenge, you know, my my male friends to name five women that they deeply admire. <clears throat> it's surprisingly hard, or something like that." I was like, <laughs> and it was kind of it was kind of this helpful corrective because when I I keep a list of the books that I read, and I I look at at the end of the year, I'm like, okay, what's the genre? What what genres am I reading? Am I reading translated stuff? You know, what's the diversity? And I always notice how few men I read. <laughs> and I was like, so I, I almost think of, you know, uh, intentionally trying to bring in some male voices. And I was just like, man, there's there's a whole other world out there, you know, because for me, I think I see this as such an explosion of diversity in memoir right now. I feel like there's so many incredible books that are being published and so many amazing perspectives there's an incredible new memoir called The Body Papers by Grace. And I've never heard her name out loud, so I'm not pronouncing it right probably. But I think it's Grace Talusan. Mm -hmm. Um, This incredible book about a lot of different things, including racial identity and the body and abuse. So I, 
I feel great about where the memoir is, but all you have to do is kind of peek at bestsellers lists and get into this, you know, look at what books are showing up in People Magazine and Entertainment Weekly. And those are the books that are getting the huge deals and that are getting huge sales. And typically they are, they are mostly written, written by, you know, men or white women or, Uh yeah, a friend of mine, actually, we, we were talking about whether or not it's hard these days as a white man to kind of get a book deal in fiction or nonfiction. And then we took a peek at the current New York Times bestsellers list. And we were like, (laughs) how could we have even thought that? You know, but that's, it's all the reactionary impulse. Like you get a little bit more diversity and people are like, oh, you know, I know. It's crazy. It's crazy. White and male. So let's talk about how you found Beacon Press. Yeah. So, um, so it's kind of a funny story. I was gearing up for the process of trying to get an agent and I had agreed to do a one-off blog post for this very small online only website called Essay Daily, which is an incredible resource for nonfiction writing. So I had agreed to do this blog post. I started working on it, realized it was going to be a lot more time than I thought. It ended up being this really interesting study of, I don't know if you know, Lucy Greeley, who wrote Autobiography of a Face, an incredible book. Oh, I've heard Um, the title. Yeah. So I I dug up this essay, which was the first, I think it was the first prose that she had published. She was originally a poet. So she was a woman who, I think she had cancer of the jaw as a young child Mm -hmm. and had massive, a massive amount of surgeries throughout her life and unfortunately died pretty young. But she wrote this essay in Harper's called Mirrorings, and she wrote her story of living with a severe facial deformity, living with with illness, and the theme is really how we are perceived and how we perceive ourselves. And then she got a book deal from that and wrote this incredible book. And something that I really admired about her shift from kind of essay to book was you know, sometimes essays are so lively and dynamic and you can do anything in them. And books sometimes, you know, when you shift to like a memoir or a book length work, you can kind of flatten some of that energy. But she did the opposite. It's just this incredible, incredible book. So I ended up writing about that for this little random website and was like, I shouldn't do things for free. Like, why am I working on this instead of my own writing? And then published that and almost immediately got an email from an agent, which really surprised me. Matt McGowan is my agent. And he was so wonderful working with me to polish the idea. He took some of the initial kind of summary pages that I had about what the book was. And your manuscript was done at this point? No, no, no. So I had I had published maybe two or three essays. I had written a draft, but I didn't even show it to Matt because I knew that it was so it was it was this first version of the book written in this very kind of literary journalism style without a lot of personal stuff. And it just I knew that I would basically have to rewrite it. So But I did have a few essays at that point that had been published that more reflected the style that I wanted the book to be in. So one of those essays, which is available on long reads, was about the chapter in which I visit the Niger Delta. On the the, far side of the fire. On the far side of the fire, yeah. So that was first and then was completed before the book. That was the first essay that I wrote about any of this this stuff. Yeah, I'd I'd written other essays in the past, but that was the first time I tackled that material. And that essay took me like two or three years to write. Like I just couldn't get it. 
And then I finally got the voice that I wanted and kind of the style that I wanted. Um, And I think in that essay too, actually, I think that the piece that I read earlier from, there is a section in that essay on the far side of the fire where I have that revival scene. So it almost was so well. Yeah. And it, it, part of my struggle in writing on the far side of the fire was the material in, that was set in the Niger Delta didn't work on its own. Like it, there wasn't, I don't know, it wasn't, I was trying to write it as this kind of journalistic account, but there was no resolution, you know, and it was only when I brought in my experience with the church that I felt like mm. I got the shape. Um, arc. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So all this mm. is very a roundabout way of saying that I got an agent, I had these these essays, I had some other I had the beginning. So I had maybe three chapters that I was actually proud of. And then I had, you know, hundreds of pages of random material that I wanted to rework. So he and I worked on, I think the first thing we did was an overview section that was probably five or six manuscript pages long. And then we worked on, once we had that right, we worked on a book proposal that with the sample chapters was about 80 pages. And we sent that out. And oh, crap. Just saying the words book proposals makes me want to go to the corner of the room and rock and cry because those are the worst. I know. It's so hard to write. How nice that you had an agent who worked with you on on one. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was – That seems really neat. He was somebody to really bounce things off of, you know. And Mm -hmm. something that really helped me when I was in graduate school, I worked with the wonderful writer Nick Flynn – and I was beginning to work with some of this material um, and try to get it in a place where it felt right. And he said, he read an essay and he's like, you know, I think you need 50 terrific pages. You know, like if you want to write a memoir, you need 50 pages that just nail it. You know, like Which that are- is funny because if you know Nick Flynn's story, those are the first 50 pages he had that he sold. Yeah. I mean, the, it, it's very bad. much like we all like... <laughs> People think this that is my example. Yeah, yeah I know, I know. Pages. We we all repeat everything that's happened to us. Yeah, I think, but like, but he was exactly but he I was right, you know. And I yeah. think that like if people are working on a memoir, I would really encourage them, you know, don't necessarily write it all out. Like I I tell my students, get the essay form right. You know, like tell figure out how to like it's almost like 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 folding a king bed sheet in a really small space like that's what it's like to write a book you know <laughs> whereas like practice folding napkins before you try to fold like a king size bed sheet because I've never heard that metaphor but that's so I love it well. I love you've it you've got to like you've just got to get like something will click once you capture the voice and you capture the structure in the short form you'll get the vision for what the book could be yeah. you know um mm. so yeah so anyway, Matt Matt sent That's out the book. Very encouraging. <laughs> um, and a lot of publishers, like the bigger publishers, liked the language, but they said that they called it double niche because I'm writing about kind of one niche world, Pentecostalism, you know, uh-huh. growing up Pentecostal. And then I also go to Nigeria. So it was like, how could we ever sell this? Like, not only is she writing about religion, but she's writing about, you know, a trip to another country. And it really made me see, like for them, they would not be willing to invest in the book unless they could see it becoming, you know, selling 100,000 copies, you know. And Beacon has been around for, 
I don't know, like 150 years, I want to say, and doesn't have those kinds of concerns. You know, they they are much more committed to getting stories out there and they're really committed to um, social justice and um, stories that kind of break open stereotypes instead of, you know, like, so, so that was, it was such a perfect fit. Well, this is not, this is not niche. This is not a problem. This is actually the world's biggest asset. Exactly. Exactly. So it's a very different way of thinking about books. Yeah. And so then Matt got you in front of Beacon and someone said, yeah, so we, we had a call about it. I really, really loved um, the editor I worked with, Amy Caldwell, and just loved the books that were coming out of Beacon, and and it's been a great experience. So, yeah. Yeah. So it's such a happy publication story. Yeah. Yeah. Completely about, you know, the the right book at the right right house and the right agent, and you doing all this great, really good groundwork to get there even yeah working for free and yeah and having yeah. this wonderful gift from that yeah what sorts of things have you taken from your experience doing workshops I in my head workshops is like the group therapy of the writing teaching world yeah, where yeah. you sort of you can't fix everybody's problems but you kind of <laughs> set things in motion so that people can kind of rub up against each other and writing styles rub up against each other and then you kind of work shit out from there yeah how do you approach teaching workshops so I I enjoy it so much like I I um the first thing I try to do is really establish an atmosphere where we put judgment out the window you know because there's it's not helpful at all to like everyone wants to go into a workshop hearing like oh this blew me away this was the best thing I've ever read but there's nothing helpful about that you know so Early on, I talk about how, for me, I see every draft as an opportunity. You know, like you you don't know what the piece is going to be until you get it on the page and you see what parts are just kind of pulsing with energy mm-hmm. versus very flat. And it's hard to see that about our own work. Um, and in nonfiction in particular, I think it's very tricky because people – are typically writing about the most intense moments from their lives, you know, um, moments where they were abused or moments where they, um, you know, struggled with an illness or mental illness. And these are, you know, our life is fascinating to us. And the trick is trying to represent on the page the real shifts that we experienced, you know, during those moments. So it's almost like a rule of thumb for me that the more kind of innately interesting a person's story is, the harder it is to write. Like I remember when I was an editor Mm -hmm. at Gulf Coast, the literary journal, I remember a piece coming in about a a woman who was uh, in a neighboring office building to the Twin Towers on September 11th. And her story was an incredible story. You know, if you heard it at a dinner party or, you know, secondhand from a friend, you were captivated. But in, in nonfiction, it's not about what happened. It's about what I what I call it is like the shift in subject position. You know, so you as the narrator, mm-hmm. where are you at the beginning of the piece? What journey do you go on, and where are you at the end? And there's really incredible ways to kind of subvert normal structures. You know, using that arc. But if there's no movement, there's no story. You know, yeah. so if you're writing about, like, if you're writing about something that happened, 
and you're the same person at the beginning and the end, I don't think it succeeds as creative nonfiction or memoir. I wish that I could like, like I almost feel like more important than writing is like reading because you don't see like the levels of like sophistication with language you don't get as a new writer until you see it in action. So for me, when I read, when I read Michael Andache or Claudia Rankine or people like that, I'm like, oh, that's the standard. You know, it's not like, you know, what I wrote in high school or college, like that's the standard. And if you're not reading a lot, then it's going to be really hard for you to have a good sense of um, kind of what's new and fresh about your own work. Um, and reading widely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And also yeah. kind of realizing, like something else I really encourage my students to do is kind of understanding who, what lineage they're in as a writer. You know, if, if you're a humorist, you should be reading very different stuff than if you aspire to be like Maggie Nelson or and if you aspire to be, you know, someone who is um, – I'm struggling to think of another another memoirist at the moment, but like, like there's just so many different traditions. There's the more lyric nonfiction writers. There's um, people who work with humor. There's people who have very straightforward voices, like Roxane Gay, and yet are able to have such sophisticated interiority. You know, oh, yeah. so yeah, I yeah. think it's really like I try to help my students see what their own. Like uh, a question I like to ask is, where is the wealth in a piece? Mm-hmm. Um, as we're reading this, is it that we're exposed to a perspective we're not usually exposed to? Is it that we're hearing a story we've heard a million times, but with such a different, you know, voice, uh, voice or you know, tone or outcome? Um, or is all the strength in uh, the humor, for example, or, or any of those different pieces? So I think. As a new writer, it's really hard to see that for yourself. And the more you write, the more you can bring that eye to your own work. But the other thing I tell them <laughs> is that you shouldn't, like the drafting process is for getting it onto the page. And for me, at least, the worst thing that I can do is bring my very critical editorial eye to my writing process so so I really encourage my students to do whatever it takes to get stuff on the page Mm -hmm. to let themselves write that draft that is just awful and then I promise them that if they do that and if they then go through and do more evaluatory work you know and say where you know what would I want to read more of in this draft because a lot of people will write about a really profound experience they had and feel the flatness that actually came across in the draft yeah. and then decide they're not a writer, like, you know? Oh, crap, screw it. I know, I know. And that's, I mean, that's okay. The world doesn't need more books, but <laughs> but I, I view it as kind of a personal challenge. Like, how can I keep them going yeah. and how can I encourage them enough? Mm-hmm. And how can I point out what is fresh about their story that they don't see because they're so inside of it? Yeah, so. that's so good. I love having teachers it's on the true. show. There's such <laughs> Always gold. something. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, such gold. Because there is always something. Yeah. And it could be literally two words together. It yeah. Could be, totally. Yeah. But you wouldn't have gotten there if you hadn't just put it on the page. Absolutely. I I love to do like these little kind of seven minute writing exercise in my work in my workshops. And I'm really struck by how often those little completely 
you know, you're not putting anything on the process because it's only seven minutes and what could you possibly do in seven minutes? And how often for my students that becomes the heart of another piece because whatever we kind of scribble onto the page, we're typically writing about stuff that is in the, at the top of our minds, you know, something that's really compelling mm-hmm. for us. And those exercises really break it out, you know. So, yeah, I'm I'm kind of that, I like that mystical side of writing, you yeah. know, like that yeah, kind of stuff. Great. Okay, so... This is our all-woman season, so most of the questions are women-oriented. Awesome. So the best book you've read in 2019 so far? Oh, that's a great question. So the best book I've read in 2019 is the novel Convenience Store Women. Have you guys heard of it? It is crazy and amazing and so like the freshest book. So the book is by Sayaka Murata. And it's about a woman, kind of like a spinster character who works in a convenience store. And it's very short and it's amazing. It's really good. What do you wish more Americans knew about Nigeria outside the bad news headlines? Oh, that's a great question. I think the thing that I was so struck by was, you know, Nigeria is not a country that tourists go to. So it doesn't have a lot of the partially because it doesn't have a lot of the infrastructure that tourists would depend on. Um, But, and I remember like hearing from, like I went to this place in the Galleria to get various vaccinations that I needed for the trip. And the nurse was just telling me all these horror stories about traveling in West Africa. And even at the time, I, I knew that it wouldn't be like that. Like she was like, oh, you should get I have blue eyes. She's like, you should get brown contacts so you won't stand out. Like just the level of kind of racism and <sighs> crap like that she was throwing at me. And so many other people did the too. before your trip. Yeah. But. You but dye your hair. You yeah. Know, I mean, it was just crazy. And- like get a fake wedding ring so people will leave you alone. And <laughs> the thing that I experienced in Nigeria and I, you know, um, I. I went to some places that are seen as somewhat dangerous, including the Niger Delta and Kano. Um, but every, wherever I was, um, and people, like, it's it's unusual to see a white person um, in most of these places. And people were, Nigerians that I met were just so incredibly warm, so welcoming, and constantly also warning me against other Nigerians. You know, I would <laughs> I'd be taking like public transportation somewhere, which isn't totally recommended. And, you know, everyone on the bus would say, you shouldn't be here. You know, like there are people who will do this and this. And I was like, no, I wherever I go, I meet people I like you, you know, who want to take yeah. me home and feed me dinner <laughs> and, you know, show me pictures of their kids and, you know, see pictures of, you know, my life in the U.S. Who's your favorite journalist, freelance writer who we should know about but maybe don't? Another great question. The first person that comes to mind is actually a friend of mine. His name is Chris Feliciano Arnold, and he just published an incredible book, The Third Bank of the River, about the Amazon. He's writing a lot these days for Harper's, for the New York Times, for elsewhere, and really kind of this style of journalism I love so much where the writer occasionally inserts themselves into the story. He was... I do love that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and just in the right kind of way. Yes. You know, just when it would really 
really help the context of the piece. And yeah, I I mm-hmm. I, I love his writing. Um, and there's something so evocative about the description. Yes. We haven't touched too much on your day job. Well, I guess it's your former day job. But what's a pedagogical piece of writing that you reach for most often, which I guess also you might use in, in the workshops that you're teaching? Yeah, that's a great question. These days, it's really The Situation and the Story by Vivian Gornick. Um, <gasps> I love that book. It's an incredible <laughs> book. I, it's become kind of a talisman, you know, like – And she has this section that's kind of what we've been talking about throughout the episode about she was trying to write a book about a trip that she took as a younger woman to Cairo and just could not figure out how to make it more than just this kind of dull secondhand counting of of this trip that she took, you know, which your best friend might want to read, but you know, nobody else. And and she talks about this concept that took me so long to understand, but she talks about like the development of the narrative persona, which is basically just like what I tell my students is it's how you present the I. And so many times mm-hmm. early drafts of essays will will not – you will read that draft of the essay. You won't know the gender of the main character. You won't know their economic class. You won't know – whether they're generally in a good mood in life, whether they had like any, you don't know a single thing about them. And because of that, you know, if the secret of memoir is that shift in subject position without knowing who they are, you can't know that, you know? And it's easy to do it once you, like I often use this example from that David Sedaris essay, Me Talk Pretty One Day, Mm -hmm. where he's this expat in France and he's trying to learn French. And at the beginning of the essay, he just has this one line about how he moved to France to learn the language. And when he enters this classroom, he quickly realizes he is the oldest, least attractive person in the room. And that's all you need (laughs) to get kind of the theme of the essay and to be able to see him in relationship to other people. And then also to really understand everything he's ever written. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And it's just it's just a line, you know, but so often people will just, you know, they know themselves so well that they don't kind of step back a few paces and really put themselves on the page. That's so true. They forget to introduce themselves. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's about having skin in the game, I feel like. Yes. I mean, that's, we want to know that people are who are writing are vulnerable in the same way that they want to make us readers vulnerable. Yeah. Totally. And yeah. and we also want to know that what they're telling us matters. Just by that little line that David Sedaris put in there, you see his, yeah, you see the vulnerability and you see that there are stakes attached to this. Like he came to this country. Right to learn the language, you know, right. and and it immediately creates right. that tension and conflict because often, you know, I'll read a piece where someone relates this really intense experience and yet I have no idea how it affected them or why they're telling it now. And that's mm-hmm. the other really interesting piece for me is I worked with the incredible writer Charles D'Ambrosio and he really stressed the moment of telling, like why at a particular moment in our lives mm-hmm. do we tell a particular story and I, I often push my mm-hmm. students on that, like, or if they're relating a story of, you know, a moment where they recovered from an addiction or something, like, why now? You know, like, yeah. that's a really critical question that I think we skip a lot. So good. Jessica, yeah. thank you so much for oh, being on the Oh, it's show. so good to be with you all. Yeah, I really enjoyed this conversation. Lovely, lovely interview. 
Boo, are you recording? Yes, I'm recording. I have a second question for you. <laughs> What's your question? Do you like books? I love books. Of course you do. This is a podcast about effing books. We're doing a book giveaway. We are offering two copies of When I Spoke in Tongues, our guest Jessica Wilbanks' memoir, and you can snag your very own free copy and some Bloomsday merch because who doesn't love a free click pen by going to our Bloomsday Literary Instagram or and and or either one both by joining our email list at bloomsdayliterary.com exciting effing <laughs> 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 shakespeare is a production of bloomsday literary in association with houston creative space hosted by kate martin williams and jessica cole and produced by me, Fu Lu. Our interns are Jennifer Overfield Renya and Lily Wolfmeyer. Production assistance by Lily Wolfmeyer. talk about t-shirts what t-shirts? what about them we have t-shirts that say things like effing shakespeare podcast and does it say by writers for writers or does it say writers talk for real it's probably says writers talk for real <laughs> who is wearing one of our t-shirts that you can get in your favorite color dark gray <laughs> For real. <laughs> you, you mean Just visualize stainless, Dark Gray. Stainless, stainless Dark Gray. Yes, yes. Stainless Pewter? steel. Pewter. 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 And, um, and this is the kind of stainless that's fingerprint resistant. So, it's, it's I love it. great. Yeah. Go to our website. Go <laughs> Go to our website, www. Nobody says that anymore. Who the fuck says that anymore? www. HTTP colon backslash backslash www. Memoirs. Do you think she was like, oh shit, what have I gotten into? Are you there? Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, I, I closed my computer for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> okay, your computer is a magical portal <laughs> in, in, in which we can have this conversation in the first way. <laughs>